Hello, and welcome to PCSJ Beyond the Article. I'm Julia Largent, the Managing Editor of Popular Cultural Studies Journal. This interview was recorded back in November. I sincerely apologize for the long delay in getting this out to you. To help with this, Brianna Quaid has joined this venture as the podcast editor. Together, we hope to get you episodes on a monthly basis. Today's episode features Jody Cooper and her article, We Couldn't Do This Without You, Filmmaker Labor in Collaborating and Co-Creating with Audiences. The article can be found in Volume 8, Number 2.5. Jody Cooper received her MA in Communication from Mount St. Vincent University in 2019. Her documentary and narrative films have been screened at festivals internationally. Her research interests span audiences and mass media, artists, or authors, social identity, communication and public relations, and cultural industries. She and her filmmaking partners have experience collaborating with their audience through a successful crowdfunding campaign for their short film, The Woodsman, which is available on YouTube. She currently works as the Director of Community Impact at United Way Hastings in Prince Edward. She can be reached at jody.cooper at msvu.ca. Enjoy the episode! Welcome. Uh, can you introduce yourself? Yeah, so my name is Jody Cooper. Uh, I would describe myself, I guess, as a, as a spherical creative professional. So I feel like my work uh, is really interdisciplinary because I have a lot of uh, varied interests as well, ranging from, you know, art to social justice. You know, I say that my work is all about relationships. It's about building community um, and as a filmmaker and academic, I hope to help um, others build relationships uh, to help them with their careers as well. When you're not researching, what are some things you like to do? What are some hobbies that you have? Sure. Uh, well, I don't know if you'd call it a hobby, but I would say that the, the biggest thing that I do when I'm not researching is probably my day job. I'm the director of community impact at United Way Hastings and Prince Edward. It's all about relationship building. We, we build a community every day with our, our donors and our community partners and funded agencies and been talking a lot about relationships lately. And I do feel like, you know, now more than ever, these kinds of relationships are, are really important. Um, but of course, in, in my, you know, my true off time, I, uh, I watch a lot of movies. Um, I love kayaking, going for walks. Uh, my husband and I play a lot of board games. So yeah, lots of stuff like that too. What's your favorite board game? I love Settlers of Catan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we play that a lot. Uh, so much so that like friends will come over and they'll be like anything but that game tonight, guys. <laughs> I own a copy of it. And weirdly enough, I've played it but I've never played my own copy of it. And so like I punched it out because I love punching out board games. It's like the best thing ever. And so I always do that immediately when I get a new game. But then in all intents and purposes, it's a brand new game on the shelf that I've never played my own version of. And I don't know why that is. Um, it, I, I love the game, but I've never played my own copy. Um, do you find that working in the nonprofit sector and then also having your academic life that they they talk to each other or do you find them completely separate 
No, I mean, I do find that they talk to each other. I mean, like I said, I, I feel that both of them are about relationship building. Um, and, and I feel like my academic work, you know, it, it looked at one type of community. It looked at the independent filmmaking community. And my uh, my day job looks at a different kind of community. But I feel like they they really uh, speak to each other. And, and a lot of the lessons that I learned through my own experience and through talking to other filmmakers about how they build their community you know, I, I put them into practice and, um, you know, I talk about why this work is important to me and why this community is important to me all the time uh, in my day job. And a lot of that comes from, from my academic work as well. And some of this might have come out a little bit, but can you talk about your background? How did you get into popular culture studies? It's not always a field that people are aware of. So how did you, how did you enter that space? Um, I, it was, uh, you know, I, I guess I grew up with a, a love of popular culture, you know, uh, especially for me, it was film and television popular culture. I watched a lot of TV, you know, growing up watching uh, Star Trek The Next Generation or, you know, reruns of the original Doctor Who with my mom. Um, so then when I went off to college, I studied uh, film and television production and, and I worked um, I worked in lifestyle television and corporate video, and that's how some of my um, original documentaries came about through that work. Um, but then I wanted to, to learn a little bit more about the theory, and so I went and did my, my bachelor's. And, and then when I studied uh, communication, it really was blending like popular culture theory and, and media studies into that work uh, when I started to, to talk to filmmakers. So yeah, that's kind of how it all came about together. Can you talk about your experiences being an independent filmmaker? So you've referenced it a couple of times. What have you experienced in that world of independent filmmaking? Yeah, uh, so I would say like at first it started off um, a bit frustrating, independent filmmaking. It, it wasn't, you know, I mean, I, I wanted to have a Hollywood budget and <laughs> I wanted to be able to hire, you know, actors and um, and my first round of experience, it was it was frustrating. I was trying to set up funding and and get a project off the ground. And eventually, we were just like, okay, like let's just use our vacation budget, and we're just gonna make this movie on our dime. And so we made our first short that way, and we were incredibly proud of it. And and they went on to festivals, but it was it was a tough experience. And so then when we started. Uh, thinking about our next project, which was the, the Woodsman, which was the project that I used in this, um, in this research, I really didn't want to do that again. It was, it was a lot to think about, okay, and here we go again, you know, the slog of, of all of that work. Um, and then one of our partners kind of brought up the idea of crowdfunding and like, what if we, what if we tried this and, and got the audience involved and kind of distributed the weight of some of this the stuff and I thought that was a horrible idea <laughs> I thought it was a terrible idea at first I was like you know the success rates of of crowdfunding and uh, how do we you know manage everything that we're promising and and uh, yeah but um but we did we decided okay this is what we're gonna do and at that point I had studied a little bit more um, public relations and and so it's like okay well we're gonna we're gonna really involve them and hopefully you know in my mind I was thinking kill two birds with one stone like 
we're going to fund our film, but we're also going to hopefully get some of the elements that we need from our film from our audience as well, like acting and things like that. And uh, so we put open calls on uh, on social media for actors, and we opened up the crowdfunding page, and um, and and then it just flourished from there. All of a sudden, it became a community project, and and I mean community both spatially, like our local area really um, jumped in, and and we had you know hotel rooms for traveling people that came, and we had local restaurants and stores getting on board. Um, but then it also became like this broader community where all of a sudden we had, you know, exec producers in Tokyo who wanted <laughs> to be part of the project. And uh, so, so yeah, uh, all of a sudden independent filmmaking to me became more about freedom than about the, uh, you know, sort of the grind. And, and now I feel like I can really focus on like the art and the fun of projects. Um, I can do the the cheesy, campy horror film, and then I can turn around and do a more serious documentary project, and and that's all okay because I can just go, you know, where my passion takes me, and and hopefully inspire the group of people to to kind of come along for the ride. Um, so, can you talk about the article a little bit and kind of summarize it for those who haven't read it? The article is called, We Couldn't Do This Without You, Filmmaker Labor and Collaborating and Co-Creating with Audiences. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, so the article, like it, it looks at filmmakers who are trying to collaborate with their audiences um, in various ways. Um, so that, that could include crowdfunding, crowdsourcing, um, you know, just building a community for people that are, are going to come out and watch the final film. So the article uses uh, four different case studies of filmmaker audience collaboration. Um, it uses narrative and auto-ethnographic methods. Uh, so that includes my own uh, experience and perspective. Um, and I mean, in the article, I really I argue that um, the building audience relationships and, and using online platforms for collaboration it, it requires additional time and new skill set uh, for filmmakers. And, you know, it really changes the traditional making process um, through these new forms of labor, labor that weren't really previously associated um, with filmmaking, including things like communications and public relationships and, and the idea of, you know, relational labor from developing um, a relationship and and maintaining that um, over the course of the project. You talk about it in the article, but can you discuss why you chose the direction of autoethnography in addition to the narrative research? And what did you find challenging about it? Or easy for that matter? For me, it, it was about authenticity and, and transparency, right? I mean, I'm a filmmaker and it was my own experience with our audience um, that got me wondering how other filmmakers conduct this kind of work. So in my research, I wanted to be really open about my bias. And I also, I wanted to be open about using my own um, experience as a framework because 
I figured inevitably, either consciously or consciously, I was going to be doing that anyway. Um, so I wanted to, to do the work and really dig into my own experience so that I could do that in a way um, that was more academic and choose to embrace the personal, um, but do it within the framework of, of autoethnography. And some of that I found really easy, like some of the reflection exercises and and um, I had chosen sort of path sort of midway through our project. So I didn't have um, some of the, you know, uh, journaling that I had would wanted right from the beginning, but, you know, being able to sort of stop and reflect and, and remember those early conversations of how did we get here? And wow, I really didn't want to get here. You know, it was, it was, um, <laughs> weird to go back and remember that I was so dead set against this path to begin with um, because by the time I was choosing these uh, autoethnography as a method I was like a full on board like let's collaborate with the audience <laughs> cheerleaders so uh, it was interesting to to remember that um, and I think like the biggest challenge I would say would be just being vulnerable on the page like I, I feel like um, you know, any writer is a bit vulnerable um, when, when you start putting things down on paper. I kept thinking about what you know, potential readers may think, and, and that's a, it's a bit of a scary place to be, to be talking so openly about, um, I mean, not just su successes, but, but challenges, right, and, and the real struggles and the extra work and the just relational burdens of, of working with other people, right? I do feel like um, like autoethnography was a really good fit and it really allowed me to focus on this period of transformation really in my own perspectives on filmmaking. Um, but then, uh, you know, I think you mentioned too, I, I chose traditional narrative research. I didn't just want to talk and dig into my own experience, which, which was a unique thing to do, but my curiosity I wanted to learn what others were doing and hear about their experience and so uh, I think that blending those two methods really worked well. If done again would you choose the the venture of autoethnography? Certainly like if I were to do it over again I would definitely do this project in this way. Um, moving forward um, I think that some element of collaboration will be both part of my filmmaking practices and will also influence what I want to research. So there's a good chance um, that I would do another research project in the future um, and incorporate autoethnography, but it would just really depend on, you know, do I have a project that I did that I want to talk about and also fits with, with the research that I want to, to do. To continue on this methods journey, uh, you interviewed several people. You talk about the, the four different case studies, one of them being your own film. Can you talk about how the process of interviewing um, the different individuals happened? You mentioned that you interviewed yourself, um, and I'm interested in that process. And then also, were the other three case studies, were they individuals that you knew before the project started, or did you reach out to them because you had come across their project? Kind of talk about that process a little bit. No, I mean, the quick answer is no. I didn't know any of these other filmmakers prior to this 
project. Um, once I got my ethics approvals, I started scouring online sites uh, for signs of audience collaboration in, in projects. Um, I would largely start uh, through, you know, the crowdfunding sites and then kind of from there filter through to their social media and things like that. Um, and each of my three participants uh, had used uh, this crowdfunding platform. So that's how I that's how I found them and I reached out. Um, and I think that in reaching out, you know, being able to talk to them about as a filmmaker with a shared experience, we were able to sort of create like this shared, let's, you know, come together and discuss and, and um, get this info out there into the world, you know. Um, I think that that really helped uh, bring them on board and, and then they each committed um, like at least an hour and a half of their time um, for a dedicated like one-on-one. -on -one. Um, and prior to the interviews, there were some like in-depth personal reflection question surveys, you know, that kind of helped me um, to steer the interviews. So, so they dedicated, you know, a significant amount of time. How did you interview yourself? I, I've not come across that concept. It actually wasn't part of my intended process. I was just like, okay, I'm going to do the autoethnography as like these reflections and my own journaling. And, and that was going to be my autoethnography. Uh, and then as I got going, I realized like these specific questions that I was asking uh, my filmmakers, really, I wanted to talk about that as well. And I thought, well, I'll just pull stuff from my journal and from my reflections. And I had all the time in the world with my with my journal so my reflections carefully like craft out exactly what I wanted to say and sound so smart <laughs> and they had 90 minutes right so that didn't seem right to me and and I didn't I wanted to experience sort of like the pressure and a little bit of of what that was like so I recruited one of my filmmaking partners and I said okay here are the questions we're gonna set up the zoom recorder and we're going to do the exact same thing. And then I'm going to transcribe my own interview um, so that it's 100% like exactly the way that everyone else experienced it. And, and I could experience that as well and see, see what my responses look like um, in that kind of a format. Did you surprise yourself during that process? Like, did you say things that you weren't, you didn't previously think about? I, I did. And I don't know, again, like the minute you put a camera there or you ask, you know, your friend to sit in, they, this person had been involved in the process. And so I felt like I had to be more vulnerable because they would know if I was lying. right? And that's when I really started talking about um, how this wasn't my ideal situation for raising the money. And, and um, you know, I started to realize uh, some of the the pressures that we had felt in you know making sure that that all of the um, incentives and and all of the things that we promised had been actually met um, and yeah so I I think that some of that like it was it was great because I felt this this pressure that I think that probably my my other interviewees had felt and I feel like I was more honest although I thought I had been trying to be really honest on paper too but the minute you get that that recorder there you're like oh now this is it um switching gears a little bit um obviously we are recording this during covid um and so how do you do you have any insight or 
you know, thoughts about how COVID-19 might impact the film industry, whether that's the crowdfunding independent filmmakers or Hollywood in general, the more big budget stuff. Do you have any thoughts about how COVID will impact that industry at all? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I, it's been tough, you know, for everyone. And, um, and I, I'm worried in, in many respects because I mean, independent filmmakers and, and even just, you know, people that, that work on crews, um, it's, you know, it's really hard to be laid off for, for months on end, especially here in Canada, like this would have been a busy season, right? From, from May to September. Um, and then people kind of plan on to live off of that, you know, over the over the winter months. So, um, you know, that part worries me, and I and I worry about a lot of young budding creatives maybe deciding to to get out of the industry because it's it's a slog, and if you, yeah, you're losing a, a whole year's worth of work, um, that's that's tough. Um, I, I'm hopeful. Uh, you know, I'd love to to say in a few years that this was potentially, you know, along with all the negatives, that, that there were some positives that could come out of it. Um, and then I think that if there are to be some positives, it could really be for independent filmmakers, right? I mean, they're, they're used to working on much smaller crews. They're used to wearing more hats themselves. Um, so this could really be an opportunity for them to step up and show the world what they're uh, capable of. I think that, you know, we're going to start to see a bit of a drought in content. We're seeing it a little bit this year. I, I'm on uh, the board of directors for a local film festival and, you know, you see a little bit of drop in content submissions, but I think, think more likely we're going to see that drop next year more so. Um, and so, you know, I'm really hoping that this is a bit of an opportunity for independent filmmakers to to find some creative solutions and, and come up with the content because the world is, is going to need some, some good positive content. Do you think that there'll be a rise in the crowdfunding because of COVID-19 or do you think that there's just going to be going to be a rise in general or, or not at all? What's the, what's the impact of crowdfunding on, on this concept of this issue at the moment? I think, I think it could be twofold as well. I mean, in, in talking to my filmmaker participants and, and myself, we all recognize that audience funding, it really, it isn't a, an inexhaustible resource. We used it and, and it was great. And really the benefits of collaborating with the audience almost outweighed the, the money that we were able to raise. And I think you know, if we could figure out a way to collaborate without needing, you know, the funding, that would be the ideal uh, for at least for the filmmakers that I talked to. Um, and I think that, you know, working in the nonprofit sector, donations are going to be, it's going to be a tough sell right now. Um, and I mean, yes, crowdfunding, you're, you're kind of purchasing a product ahead of time. Um, and it's something that you want to see, and and it's great to be able to vote, you know, with your purchasing power that way. But, but I think it's just been so tough economically that it's hard to say, you know, that there's going to be a real influx um, in crowdfunding. I think that there will be an influx in in more 
filmmakers who who are tempted and who want to try and build an audience and, and create a budget this way. Um, but it'll be interesting to see if, if other models will come out um, of, of how, you know, maybe a little bit more grassroots. I'd love to see like a, a crew and equipment sort of sharing, you know, platform where it's a little bit more of like a gift economy kind of a crowdsourcing. Um, I think that those models might be something that, that are developed uh, through this just because financial resources are going to be scarce for everyone. Um, so some of my own research is focused on how fans of documentaries um, interact with doc filmmakers on social media and specifically on Twitter. I think that's the real interesting platform for me because a lot of times there is that direct communication with filmmakers. And although that's different from the collaboration that you're talking about over the crowdfunding aspect or the participatory filmmaking, um, but how do you see social media impacting filmmaking and the filmmakers, um, whether that's fictional or non-fictional films? And you know, is there a difference between the type of film? So you've made both. You've made both horror and documentary, from what I gathered from your your information, this conversation. So, do you see social media impacting differently in each of those genres, or um, is it just that you know it's a film, so therefore it's impacted or not impacted? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's great. I think social media is wonderful way for all kinds of filmmakers to have that like open channel dialogue. Um, and I, I don't think that it really matters so much the kind of film, more as the kind of filmmaker. Um, some filmmakers are much more private about their processes, about their subject matter than others. And, you know, I, I know I know lots of documentary filmmakers who, you know, have, have used social media as starting points. That's where they got their story idea or potential uh, interview subjects or they've reached out and said hey you know I'm I'm doing this project can you suggest people that I should contact um, and that's very much you know you, you could you could do the exact same thing and we we did the exact same thing with uh, with a narrative uh, piece you know to say well we need this piece of equipment or this kind of car or, you know it, I think it's all about how open um, you're able to be and and that's that's not, you know, it's neither here nor there. I think we need both kinds of artists. Um, you know, there is the more like auteur filmmaker who has a vision and and just you know runs with that and and shows the final piece. But um, and and they could use social media as well to hear from their from their audience after the fact, right? I think um, there are different times for communication and. Uh, in every stage of production and it just it's up to the filmmaker if they're they're having those conversations before the film's made or afterwards. Well what's next? What's your next project? Yeah we're um, uh, you know my filmmaker partners and I were definitely uh, working on another film and I you know I'm already trying to figure out like like a double dutch you know when do you let the audience in when when is it ready you want to uh you want to ensure that your vision is clear enough that you can pitch something and say this is you know this is what we're hoping will be the story um but you also don't want it to be 
fully solidified so that there aren't those opportunities uh, for collaboration. So I think we're we're getting close to uh, to letting the audience in on on the project and uh, and then looking for some collaboration again. So I'll be excited uh, excited to do that. Well, that's exciting. I look forward to seeing the project. All right, one last question for you. What is one piece of advice that you have for young pop culture scholars? Yeah, I would say, um, you know, be true to your why and don't be afraid to wear it on your sleeves. So embrace the vulnerability um, because I think that showing that you have a shared love of something or a shared experience uh, can be a great way to attract both potential research participants, but then also your audience that's going to read your work in the end. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining today. Um, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you, Julie. I really, really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcast to stay up to date with our episodes. If you have any questions or would like to connect with PCSJ, check us out on Twitter at the PCSJ. You can also find more information on our website, mpcaaca.org, and then navigate to the PCSJ tab on the menu. Thanks for listening.